Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Ian Condry about his new book, The Soul of Anime, Collaborative Creativity and Japan's Media Success Story. The Duke University Press published that in 2013. This is a book that is going to be of obvious interest and import to anybody who's interested in the history of and the contemporary practices of anime and manga, comics, film, television, and Japan and beyond. It's a really fascinating ethnography based on very different kinds of fieldwork over many years in Japan, in toy factories, in anime production studios, at fan conventions, online, and in lots of other places. So it's really fascinating as a window into the production and generation and formation and also history of anime in Japan. It's also, though, at the same time about much, much more than anime or manga or Japan. This is a story that's also very much about contemporary media, about transmedia ethnographies, what that can look like, what that might look like, what that does look like. It's about how we think about collaboration and creativity and their relationship and the ways that anime, for example, is not just an industry, but rather it emerges from and its success really relies on the interplay among many, many different kinds of people, kinds of spaces, kinds of objects and ideas, uh, including fans, including producers, writers, toy manufacturers, um, different kinds of media. And it's a really, really fascinating story of transmedia practices in that way. As you'll see, or as you'll hear rather over the course of the interview, from the beginning to the end, this is also a story about futures of democracy, futures of capitalism, possible ways of thinking about the spaces and the kinds of grounds from which creativity and from which media practices and products um, with products conceived very broadly here emerge. And so it's a really fascinating account of that as well. I got a lot out of it, and um, that's a lot coming from somebody who usually works on and focuses on you know, 16th century Chinese translation practices in science and medicine. So it's, it's a really great book. Um, it's really, really interesting, and it was great fun and really enlightening, actually, to talk with Ian about it. So I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Ian Condry about his new book, The Soul of Anime, Collaborative Creativity and Japan's Media Success Story. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ian, and thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me during a very busy time in the semester. Thanks for having me. So could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of the anthropology of modern Japan? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I first uh, started my interest uh, in Japan, or at least started pursuing it, when I failed my Spanish competency exam in college. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My college had a language requirement. I had studied Spanish for years, uh, but when I took the competency exam, I failed marvelously and needed to take a year of language. 
And I was really torn. I was thinking, I don't know, Russian or Japanese, something I couldn't do in uh, high school. And I just read Shoga, uh, that kind of crappy, I shouldn't say crappy, but uh, <laughs> medium-level James Clavell novel. But it was quite fascinating. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to take Japanese. And I had a great Japanese language teacher who really turned me on to the language. Uh, and so I took another year of the language, and then I had a chance to go to Japan for the summer. And gradually, I increasingly found uh, my path leading through Japan. I spent a year on the JET program after college. I, uh, I worked for a Japanese newspaper in Washington, D.C. for a couple years after that. Uh, and it was really that experience of living in Japan and working for a Japanese newspaper in the U.S. that got me interested in anthropology. Uh, that I was uh, thinking about journalism, but one of my jobs as uh, at the Yomiuri Shimbun, where I worked in D.C., was to interview academics. Uh, so I was hanging out with both journalists and listening to academics, and what I found was that journalists uh, knew a little about a lot of things, uh, and that academics knew a lot about little things. <laughs> but in some ways, I found the perspectives of the micro-focused academics to be more broad. Uh, and actually more insightful was my experience. And so that drew me to back to academia, which I thought I had left behind. And then I was read a book uh, that was advertised in the Science Time about anthropology as cultural critique. Uh, and that I had never heard of. I'd heard of anthropology. I didn't actually know what it was as an undergrad. I thought it was about bones and things like that, uh, which some anthropology is, but I hadn't heard about cultural anthropology until reading this book. And uh, it really, this book, Anthropology is Cultural Critique, is a very simple argument, which is that we do anthropology not only to understand other cultures, but to use that understanding to see the limitations of our own cultural understandings. Uh, and that was very much the experience I had living in Japan, uh, and it was also something I felt... Uh, being in that office of Japanese journalists and helping them, helping explain America to them, uh, was that this kind of comparative perspective really helps you understand your own culture in an interesting way. Uh, and that's what drew me to anthropology, and that's where I had language in Japan, uh, so Japan was going to be my focus. And that's kind of the short story, I suppose, I suppose of how I got into Japan anthropology. So interviewing academics, that sounds like a really interesting idea. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> so the book that we're talking about today uses ethnography to explore the social side of media through fieldwork in really different various sites of anime-related production, and we'll talk about some of those sites. Now, the products of production here, this is actually really interesting, and, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit later. These products include not just anime programs and films, but also material objects, toys, and also things that we might not think about um, usually as products, and this really interestingly, I think, helps us do that, form of labor, ways of thinking about masculinity, of love, of emotion, among other things. So this is a really interesting, very deep, and very broad-ranging study that we get to through an ethnography of anime. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to this topic in particular? Where does this fall within the larger trajectory of your research? Sure. Well, when I was a graduate student, uh, I was interested in questions of cultural globalization uh, and the whether globalization was leading to a homogenous global culture or whether processes of localization would, in fact, outweigh 
uh, whatever global influences appear to be out there, that seemed to be a very interesting kind of, of intellectual problem. And what I ended up studying in order to explore that was Japanese rap music. Uh, that uh, I've been a music fan for many, many years and a hip-hop fan since college. And uh, when I went to Japan for some preliminary research, I discovered rap music. Uh, and it had all these interesting things around language and masculinity and race, because it's black music and yellow rappers, and I'm a white guy who's into hip-hop. And so these things are sort of mixed together in really complicated uh, and fascinating ways. And, and what I found at the end was that hip-hop does in some ways lead to global homogenization. You can ask rap fans around the world uh, what is hip-hop, and they can describe the four elements of breakdance, graffiti, uh, rap music, and DJing. Uh, and so there are ways that there's a shared vocabulary, fashion, uh, style of music. And yet, once you start listening to the words themselves and think about how particular artists relate to particular audiences, uh, that homogenization turns into a kind of intense localization necessarily. Uh, and so I was very interested in that dynamic. Uh, and, uh, and although my argument was that mostly it's localization with a little bit of homogenization, uh, that also the forms of localization lead to a very interesting diversity uh, that really speaks to, I would say, contemporary anthropological understandings of culture, which is to say culture not as a set uh, system of patterns or that everyone shares, but rather as a kind of field of debate, uh, and that being a rapper allows you to debate what it means to be Japanese in certain ways. Uh, and that was quite fascinating to me, and I, I thought I made the point, but one of the things that came up uh, in a lot of discussions with audience members and readers of the book as well, for all of that localization, isn't it the case that culture mostly comes from the U.S. or the West uh, and travels to Asia and the rest, and so that there is still a kind of uh, singular direction uh, to what happens uh, and I thought, well, of course, that's not true. <laughs> There's all sorts of examples of Hollywood, Nigeria's Nollywood, uh, of, of cultural forms starting in one country and spreading to others. Uh, but in the case of Japan, it was really anime uh, that stood out in my classes uh, that... Um, uh, that I'd ask my students, why are you taking a class in Japanese culture? And I'd go around and the students say, anime, 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 manga, anime. And there's always one karate or, or judo kid in the class. <laughs> but mostly, it, it seemed to me, my audience uh, were anime and manga fans. So I, I noticed that early on, and I thought, that's interesting. There is something powerful happening through Japanese animation and how it's inspiring an interest in Japan. Uh, but then there was also a kind of more proximate reason, too, which is that I use a lot of Japanese rap music in my classes. And my students said, oh, professor, you're into Japanese hip-hop. you got to check out this show, Samurai Champloo. Wow. <laughs> so what's that? And they said, well, this is, this is anime, and this is about samurai, but the samurai are really into hip-hop, and it, it's this whole remix thing that goes on. You've got rapping samurai. You've got graffiti samurai. Uh, you're going to love it. I said, well, that sounds great, but uh, I looked it up, and it's, it's, the DVD hasn't been released yet. You know, how am I supposed to watch it? And they said, oh, professor, 
I have to show you uh, the world of fan subs and BitTorrent. <laughs> and once they showed me that, you know, and it's, of course, anime fans out there all know about fan subbers and BitTorrent and how to use that, but I was a kind of slow-to-pick-up things professor, and uh, they showed me how to use the stuff, and it was amazing to me, and I felt I was looking at the future of media. Uh, I was about ready to go home and cancel my cable subscription right away. <laughs> once I decided discovered BitTorrent. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but uh, I certainly do appreciate uh, the kinds of things that these fan communities and these new forms of distribution enable. Uh, and that really set me down the path uh, to wanting to learn more about animation. That's great. And we'll talk a little bit later about, um, or I hope we'll get to the Samurai Champloo, its cousin Afro Samurai and fan subbing and all that wonderful stuff that you talk about later on. Great. You talk at the beginning about the field work that you did for the project, so I'll just kind of quickly lay this out, and we can talk about um, different elements of this over the course of the chapters as they come up. So this, the field work for the book extended from 2004 to 2010, with a really intense um, three and a half months in the summer of 2006, in which you um, described going to script meetings, um, voice recordings, some of which were your own voice recordings, <laughs> and we'll talk about that, editing sessions, interviews, observations, Conventions um, and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's a really interesting, really varied set of ethnographic um, experiences that you bring to the study. Now, the book is about anime, but it's also about a lot more than anime. Uh, the book argues over the course of the chapters for the centrality of something that you're calling collaborative creativity. And we'll get to that. Um, we'll, we'll get to what that means and circumstances in which we really see that in action in really interesting ways um, in, a, in a chapter or two. But you also, in the title of the book and in the introduction, talk about um, collective or collaborative creativity and collective social energy in particular as the soul of anime. So can you start us off as we get into the, the body of the book by talking about this, the choice of this word soul? Um, why talk about the soul of anime? And can you talk a little bit about your notion of how collective social energy makes up this soul um, and that choice of that ver uh, word in particular? Sure. Uh, I, I, I should say that uh, as the book was going through reviews at the press, there, and also as I was giving talks about the book early on, uh, there was complaint about the use of the word soul, uh, that it's a, a word that often means the essence of something. Uh, the soul of the samurai it was an idea that was used uh, in quite terrible ways, I think, to encourage kamikaze pilots, for example. Um, uh, it's a kind of reactionary word that has quite negative connotations often uh, in Japan because it blurs over history uh, and, and seems to imply that there's an ultimate essence to things. So I'd like to clarify that when I say the soul of anime, uh, I'm not talking about that. Uh, so that's a bit of a challenge to do. Uh, but one of the reasons I, I became interested in this notion of soul, for one thing, the artists who make anime talk about soul, the soul of animation. And it's kind of interesting, uh, animation as an idea, because it's just drawn lines on a page, right? And, and you stack up these drawn lines, and it gives the appearance of movement, and that appearance of movement makes us feel like there's something actually there, often a living thing actually there, when in fact it's just lines uh, on a page. And so 
it sort of raises the question, well, what gives anime that soul? And, and what I want to, I'm trying to argue is that in our dealings with media and the ways we analyze media, uh, there's a lot of talk about the media object itself. You know, what is it about cinema? What is it about television? What is it about uh, the timbre of the instruments that are captured on the digital form that are then create music? That there's a lot of effort. In fact, the word media itself seems to focus on that thing in between us, that object in between us. Uh, but I'm an anthropologist. I become interested in how people use these objects, how people feel about these objects, how people talk about these objects. In other words, I'm interested in that space uh, between the screen and ourselves, where we start to feel something, we start to feel attached to SpongeBob and Patrick Starr, right? I mean, why should we? They're not, they're not people. They don't exist. And yet we feel something for them. Moreover, when we talk with other fans, we share that kind of energy between us. Uh, and so what I guess I'm trying to do is shift the attention of our understanding of media uh, from that object, something that's on a screen, uh, to both the experience, uh, the thing that happens between the screen and us. It's not only inside me. It's not only on the screen. It's kind of in that space. And also in that space uh, between people. When we're fans and we're talking about something and we're energized around uh, some kind of something, whatever we're interested in. Uh, that it seemed to me that there was a real power to this. Uh, that in fact, when people were making toys related to characters, or when people were taking these famous characters like Luffy from One Piece and making it into anime and then making it into a toy and then dressing up at a fan convention, that there was something that connected all of those things. And part of it was the idea of this character. But it seemed to be equally important was the excitement that we feel towards that character. That that character by itself, it's just an object, and there's so many thousands of these characters. So what distinguishes different characters are who feels what towards them, and how do they feel towards that. And that's that social energy. So I guess what I'm trying to argue is that if there is a soul of anime, it's not in the object. It's between the object and ourselves as part of a community of both creators and fans. Uh, and that gives us a way of talking about media that doesn't make the quick distinction between, well, there's producers on one side and fans on the other. There's the media object and there's the uses of the object. What I'm trying to say is those things are, are knitted together. Uh, in a kind of system, and then understanding the system means recognizing the power of that energy, that soul of anime. And I think, at least from the perspective of um, this reader, uh, the book makes a really clear point and makes a really effective point that the value of anime is produced not just through this social movement, which is really important, but also through something that you get into in more depth later in the book, and I hope we'll get to that um, in a little while, which is transmedia movement. So really, um, you're making the point, I think, really powerfully here that rather than thinking about television or film or toys, what's emerging here is a, a system of value and a way of producing affect and producing value that's inherent exactly in this movement across media and through media and sort of transmedia. Yeah, exactly right. I'm, I'm glad you caught it that. And, and certainly a lot of my research is inspired by people like Henry Jenkins, who writes about transmedia storytelling. Uh, and for me, collaborative creativity is another way of thinking about 
that transmedia or recently uh, Henry has a new book, Henry Jenkins, uh, with a couple other authors called Spreadable Media. Uh, and the idea is that media that can be spread across uh, the distribution channels or vehicles, it's hard to know, even know what to call them these days, uh, you know, have some kind of coherence to them. And I guess what I want to, my idea of collaborative creativity, it's basically the same phenomenon, but I want to say, sure, you can call that transmedia storytelling, but if you think about the people who do the spreading, <laughs> uh, how they collaborate and why they collaborate and how that collaboration adds value. Uh, it may be the same phenomenon, but it raises a different uh, range of questions. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm trying to draw attention to. And speaking of collaboration and connections, actually, moves us really nicely into the first chapter. So the chapters are going to, as we get to them or as we get to as many as we, as we can, the chapters are going to successfully develop different aspects of and different elements of the set of phenomena um, that you were just talking about, the set of um, aspects of this larger argument that you were just mentioning. The first chapter looks closely at the work of somebody who actually was raised in the introduction, um, but we'll, we'll just talk about him here. To, uh, and this is uh, the figure of Mamoru Hosoda. Am I pronouncing that sort of not entirely wrong? That's just right. Okay. Mamoru Hosoda is perfect. Okay. Um, to explore the, the practical steps in anime production and really the labor that goes into, the really intense labor that goes into anime production. So can you spend a few minutes introducing uh, Mamoru Hosoda and in particular talking a little bit about um, the production of this uh, product, Summer Wars, um, that you were uh, part of the discussions about. Sure. So I really like Mamoru Hosoda. He's one of my favorite uh, anime directors. Uh, he's been around for a while. He started working uh, in Toei Animation, which is one of the big children's animation studios in Japan. Uh, but he gradually kept working his way up the ladder and got some uh, directing possibilities with uh, Digimon, one of the early Digimon uh, adventures, Digital Monsters. And uh, one of his breakthrough moments is that he was asked by the uh, neo-pop artist uh, Takashi Murakami uh, to make a short film. Uh, and this ended up being quite a vehicle for him to get more, more attention as well. But what I got to see, I, I actually had a mutual friend, uh, a friend who writes about hip-hop, uh, and then who also ended up writing about anime, and, and he was the one who said, oh, you got to you got to meet this guy. Also, that he's going to be the next big thing in animation. And, and that ended up being a pretty uh, prescient idea because uh, Hosoda's last three feature films which he, that he directed have all won Best Animated Feature uh, of the Year for the Japan Academy Awards, uh, including his most recent one, Wolf Children, uh, which, in fact, we were lucky enough just to air at MIT uh, about a month ago. Uh, so that's very exciting. One of the films I got to see Hosoda make some of, uh, and this is really what I picked up from my hip-hop study and carried over to my animation study is that there's a lot to be learned in media by focusing on those who create it. Uh, how do they conceive of new projects? How do they divide up the work? Uh, what are the goals of different kinds of projects that, in fact, again, it's 
for me, the study of media is, is not just about the objects, but all the people and what they do around it, uh, from the creators to the fans to the promoters to the distributors and so on, uh, that that's all part of some larger complex that's worth analyzing. And Hosoda, like most directors, is very adept uh, at thinking about audiences, pulling people together, defining a larger project uh, in ways that inspire people and, and pull them in so they can collaborate in meaningful and effective ways. Uh, and Summer Wars is just this fascinating film in all sorts of levels. It ha- it's, a, it's about both the promise and the dangers of our socially networked world online. Uh, a rogue uh, artificial intelligence bot goes out there and wreaks havoc in the main online virtual world of Oz. Uh, and in order to solve this threat, uh, which becomes uh, quite dramatic in a variety of ways, uh, it takes a whole group of people, a whole family, in effect, uh, to combat uh, this rogue uh, virus that's online. Um, and so it's very, it was very interesting to hear Hosa to talk about conceptualizing the film uh, and also just to talk about the labor that goes into it. I mean, when he's writing his storyboards, he's working in a Denny's, usually, if you can believe that. <laughs> he's family restaurants. He likes to work with other people around him. So he says he likes them because they'll let you sit there for 12 hours as he writes his storyboards. Uh, and then once the storyboards are made, there's meeting after meeting after meeting with the first tens and then hundreds of people who have to get involved in making the work. Um, and that's where... You know, actually, animation is quite different from music, where it can be either even one person, but usually just a small number of people can make a CD. Uh, the animation requires all of this labor. Uh, it really is a kind of media form uh, that is from a past generation and yet carries on. Uh, it was also striking uh, to see how much, not only how much work it is to make animation, uh, from this just people drawing all day long to other people working for hours and hours on the sound and the music and the backgrounds and all these things have to be put together uh, in such a way that it's very hard to make money. Uh, certainly people aren't getting rich. People do make enough money to get by. Uh, but again, it, then it raises the question, well, why are people doing it if there's not money to be made? And the answer, I think, is partly that people feel a satisfaction from being part of a project that's bigger than themselves. Uh, and in some ways, Summer Wars dramatizes that. It takes that idea uh, and says, you know, normally we think of the hero and maybe his sidekick is solving all the problems. And Hosoda said, I reject that. That's, that's not the world we live in. That in fact, to solve the problems of today, we need huge groups of people working collaboratively together. Uh, and we need to understand that different kind of heroism if we're going to understand how to engage in the socially networked world of the present. That's right. And I think this is, a, this is one of many cases throughout the book where there's this really nice, really elegant movement from the subject matter and the mechanics of the storyline of the anime example that you're talking about looking at, and then the mechanics of the argument that you're making. And so here, the hero, as you mentioned, of the um, of Summer Wars is actually a family, and connection itself is the weapon. And you use this really nicely to talk about the metaphor, or as a metaphor for the collective labor that goes into animation. Now, that labor is something that comes up again as we move to the next chapter, which looks at how new anime projects are built around what you call a creative platform of characters and of worlds. And so these characters 
Chow Plu, which we, we talked about, which is great, and Afro Samurai, which involves a kind of a shout out to Samuel L. Jackson, which is also great. Um, you, take us, right. <laughs> you take us in there um, by looking at the ways that a children's anime called Zen Mai Samurai actually emerges out of a project um, for children called Deco Boko Friends. And you take us into a process of script creation for this children's anime anime program, Zen Mai Samurai. So can you talk a little bit about this example and the, and the process of script creation and what that tells us about this larger argument that you're making in the book? Sure. So one of the questions always when it comes to ethnographic fieldwork is, uh, where do you go? Right? How do you study something uh, where it's not quite located in a single space? Uh, and this was a problem I, I had with anime, I mean, with hip hop. Uh, I eventually settled on nightclubs and recording studios as being two of the most important spaces. But that was only after a long time of trying record companies and music magazine editorial meetings, both of which I did some field work at, uh, neither of which ended up being useful at all. Uh, so there was some of that in. Uh, the anime world as well, I mean, part of it is getting access is a real trick. Uh, but I look for these places. So, so my guiding principle is always try to go where the action is. <laughs> and what defines the action, of course, depends on what you're interested in. But, but certainly what I found was these script meetings were a fascinating place where people would debate the characters. They would debate the overall concept of the of the show, they would talk about the audience to some extent, but rarely, actually. I was surprised how little audiences came up in the discussion. Uh, and you could see the different roles, the hierarchies, uh, the kinds of things that traditional uh, anthropology looks at. And, you know, I think people sometimes say, you know, Ian, you're very unusual for an anthropologist, but actually, I, I feel I use very conventional ideas of anthropology, but maybe apply them to things that uh, often people don't do, although increasingly people are looking at media and popular culture as well. Uh, so these script meetings were fascinating, and uh, partly because when I got into the study, uh, and again, thinking about uh, Henry's transmedia storytelling, I thought that the stories were what were going to be the issue, uh, that I'd ask fans, why are you into anime? And they said, well, the stories, you know, there's not simple black and white, good versus evil, they're more gray zone, uh, and there's these long story arcs that continue uh, for months and months, and, and, and the stories are really what get me into anime. I, I heard this story, this idea over and over. Uh, and a lot of the, the analysis of anime uh, in other books, which are quite valuable, uh, tends to tell the story of a particular episode and then describe how it relates to identity or gender or technology and so on. And, and that's fine, but when I sat in these script meetings, I was really struck by how the discussion all revolved around characters, actually, and the world in which these characters move. Uh, and so Deco Boco Friends, you can look it up, there's, there's some of them posted online, uh, is remarkable. It's aimed at very young children. And we're talking about three or four-year-olds, sometimes even younger, to be the, uh, the target for this audience. And there are these characters come out and just talk to the screen. Uh, and so they are just, there's no background background, there's a door that they come through, otherwise there's nothing to the world itself, uh, except these characters. And the characters also only communicate with the young viewer uh, as well, so sort of talking straight at the young viewer. Uh, and it's an extreme example of how you can have animation 
that doesn't have a story particularly, but it does have a character. Uh, and as I looked at all of these different examples of animation being made, it quickly became clear that the first step in designing an an animation almost always was designing the characters, thinking about the worlds, and then later developing the story. Uh, And so that's, I sort of used that, and and you're right, you know, and the the way I try to write the book and think about analysis is to start with the people who are making the stuff, uh, see how they view the world, uh, and then see how on top of that everything else is built uh, and so what I came away with was the notion that these characters uh, are what form, as you said, the generative platform. Uh, I, I try to use this word platform. It's a, it's a tricky word because people have a lot of ideas what platform might be. But just the idea of something you build upon is one of the connotations there. Uh, the characters were really at the center of things. And Zen Mai Zamorai was like that as well. And you're right, I tell stories about how they settled on these different characters and created the characters, and it was really the character designers who were at the center of this project. Uh, and that was something I, I was surprised by. I wasn't expecting it. I, I think of media in terms of story and narrative and plot. It's just kind of a Hollywood way of viewing things, right? You, you think of what a Hollywood pitch is. Tell us the story in 30 seconds, <laughs> right? And, and, and there's an old Hollywood saying, you know, what does a great Hollywood movie need? Three things. Story, story, story. Um, and, uh, and, we, and the way we talk about the endings of movies. And we're either furious or delighted by an ending of a movie. Again, it's, it's about the story. But in these anime and manga worlds, uh, it's much more about developing an appreciation of these characters that then can be spun off in all kinds of different stories. Uh, and to me, it suggested a very different way of thinking about what's meaningful and what's of value within media. Now, as we move further into the book, you take us from this context where we're focusing explicitly on the trans media importance of these phenomena to looking specifically in the third chapter at the difference between um, different examples of individual media, certainly in the early um, part of your story. So you move us here in chapter three from the 21st century to look at post-war anime in the 1950s and 1960s and to look at how the emergence of different approaches to anime in feature films on the one hand and in TV in the other hand allow us to think about the kinds of connections between these media that are that became necessary um, increasingly so to anime's success. So chapter three, I'm just going to kind of signal this for listeners without asking me to talk too much about it, um, just purely um, in the interest of time. Yeah, good idea. I'll just, I'll just say for listeners, we could easily talk about this book for three hours. There's so much in here, and there's so many great examples. Um, but just for those interested in animation history, there are some really great um, accounts here of Yasuo Otsuka at Toei Animation, who focused on animated movement in feature films, and then Osamu Tezuka and Mushi Productions, who um, were working in TV animation and is rather than um, focusing on lots of movement and lots of frames, is really under the constraints of producing a limited number of frames to, pr- to work with a limited budget and a very tight schedule. So as you tell us these stories, you move to this really interesting part of this chapter that looks at um, something that I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, in, in any way that you'd like, and that is um, these, these kind of related issues of the influence of Disney 
as a model and rival in the early days of this post-war Japanese animation, and in a related um, sense, something that actually animates um, some of the questions of the book from the very beginning, which is this connection between animation culture and national culture, um, which is really interesting here. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as that motivates the kind of work that you're doing in this part of the book. Sure. Well, uh, it is important to recognize the global influence of Disney. Uh, that Walt Disney's uh, classic animations like Snow White or Bambi uh, went around the world uh, and had a deep in- impact uh, on animators all over the place, uh, and certainly in Japan as well. Uh, the famous uh, godfather of manga or comic books, uh, Osamu Tezuka, is reported to have watched Bambi a hundred times or <laughs> and, and even created his own sort of fan-made pirated versions of, uh, of the film uh, and part of the early part of his career. Uh, and so there, there's a deep impact of Disney, uh, not only in terms of style, but in terms of the kind of rationalization of the animation process. Uh, so uh, the, some of these early uh, animation books were copied by hand. I mean, this was before Xerox machines existed. So some Japanese animators would go to uh, Hollywood and there would be a few uh, guidebooks there and they would literally copy it over uh, page by page, image by image and bring it back uh, to Japan. And so uh, there was, you know, that animation has always been a kind of globally connected media form uh, with Disney often at the center, but not the only influence as well. The Fleischer Brothers, I talk less about it in the book, but the Fleischer Brothers made Popeye and Betty Boo are very influential too. Um, so, and then there were also these work process things that, uh, that Disney uh, productions figured out about dividing up the work and having the, uh, the key frames, which is the, the main frames that are drawn, done by the lead people, and then the, the up-and-coming animators would draw the in-between frames uh, to fill in things. Um, so Toei Animation eventually or starts out in this Disney form. They want to be the rival of Disney and make films. Uh, uh, and that was sort of one thread and sort of the making of film side of things that Hosoda, for example, is also still very involved in, ends up being one side of animation. Uh, but then television animation really gets going with uh, Tezuka, the, the manga artist, who wants to make animation uh, for television, a weekly program. Uh, but it's simply too much work. So they had to really figure out how to break down the number of frames that had to be drawn week to week into a massively limited uh, number of frames. And it was really quite complicated. There's all these tricks you do. Uh, and then everybody was experimenting with them. And the shock, I guess, to somebody like Otsuka, the animator who made films and was interested in movement and animation, is that this very limited form of animation around Astro Boy, for example, which was the first sort of regular TV show, animated TV show in Japan, uh, in the early 1960s, that Astro Boy was hugely popular. Uh, and it was kind of devastating to Otsuka, <laughs> who had spent his life you know, devoted to making great animation to see that this, what was everybody would agree was pretty crappy animation, nevertheless was very moving to audiences. And it really set television animation down this path to say, look, if we have a character that's already hugely popular through comic books, we can make even a lousy animation and people will watch it. Uh, and it really set into motion then this question of, well, which kind of animation, what can we afford, how do we think about it, uh, and it's a dynamic that continues to this day. 
uh, and it's it's quite interesting. Uh, of course, limited animation is not unique to uh, Japan. I mean, most of the stuff you see on TV tends to be fairly limited. Uh, and then there's also this more elaborate, full animation. Uh, and yet what's interesting to me is that they share this... Uh, this interest in having us relate to the characters, characters that don't actually exist, uh, and so they share this kind of social energy as well. Um, and in terms of national culture, I mean, there's all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, is it Japanimation? For one thing, the word anime in Japan refers to both Pixar and uh, Hosoda's work, uh, but and they say Japanimation often when they want to discuss uh, Japanese animation. Uh, but for us in the U.S., anime tends to always refer to Japanese. Uh, animation. Uh, so it's tied up with national identity in all sorts of interesting ways um, and, uh, and it keeps evolving as time goes on. And I'll just uh, again mention for listeners um, who um, would, will, are really interested in the history of comics and the history of animation, there's a really interesting account here on, in this chapter of um, the ways that the 1954 Comics Code in America actually shaped a very different trajectory for comics in the U.S. versus other places and a really interesting account also of manga as a world of um, what you call democratic capitalism, uh, which is a really, I think, interesting element to bring to this story. Now, as we move into um, the, the later chapters of the book, we move into a set of really, really interesting discussions that, um, that I want to save time to ask you about. This is a pretty exciting part of the book for me. So chapter four looks specifically at how anime producers and toy companies worked together to push the development of robot anime, so mecha anime, that actually emphasize the theme. So, so we're going from, um, we've been talking a lot about children's anime. Here we're moving to anime that emphasize the themes that are meaningful to adults. And in doing so, we're actually expanding anime audiences. So you talk specifically here um, about a really interesting case study that brings out the importance here of notion of the importance of connections to something called the real, or to ways that we're thinking about and that animators and people working on um, these programs were thinking about the real. So can you speak a little bit about this example of Gunda mm-hmm. and ways that this um, sort of gets at both the importance of the connection between toy makers and anime in this period, but also ways that this gets at something called, or that we might think of as the real. Sure. Sure. Well, it comes back to this, uh, part of it comes back to this question of, uh, you know, anime has gone global, right? 60% of the world's TV broadcast cartoons are Japanese in origin. Uh, and when I started the project, I thought, this is great. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out the secret to anime's global success as a business. I'm going to package it. I'm going to be a consultant. I'm going to make lots of money. <laughs> that was my idea. Uh, kind of a, a naive idea, it turned out, uh, because the first thing I discovered is anime doesn't make much money. The people don't get rich. But in a way that raises an even more interesting question. How does something that doesn't make money <laughs> go global? Right? If stuff that makes a lot of money, we can understand how people spend money and make it go global. But anime is a different case. And hip-hop is a similar kind of grassroots, underground globalization from below. Uh, and so for me, the answer ended up being, well, it's, it, to understand anime's global success, we need to understand that connection with manga, with the comic books, uh, where many of these characters come from. 
uh, and then get spun made into animation. And then the other side is we need to know the toy world uh, because the toys is actually where the money is made uh, and that the money made on toys is then fed back into sponsoring new animation programs. Uh, and it was sort of during this era of mecha or giant robot anime uh, that this connection really becomes solidified and even expands into different older markets of, of toy and plastic model manufacturers. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the broader story. Again, that's one aspect of the collaborative creativity, not only between producers and fans, but between industries. Um, and in some ways you say, well, of course, that's obvious. Except that when you open up the business pages, people analyze the industry, right, or a corporation without thinking about often the connections between the synergies, uh, even between separate industries that, in fact, uh, determine the successes even within those in industries. So the Gundam example is fascinating. So Gundam, there was this director, uh, uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino. Uh, who got famous making uh, giant robot anime that was really effective at selling toys. Uh, and so as he moved up in his, uh, in his career, he wanted to make something sort of more serious. Uh, and the term they used for that greater seriousness of this new series they called Gundam, which originally aired in 1979, was real. That they wanted to make things that were more real. That you have something like Astro Boy, he flies around, he's got machine guns coming out of his butt, he, he beats up monsters, uh, things get destroyed, but then uh, the next episode, everything's recovered again. There's no destruction, there's no problem, there's no fallout from the battles that have happened the week before. Uh, and Tomino and the people he's working with said, well, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, if there's a war, there's a battle, there's going to be uh, civilian casualties, there's going to be destroyed uh, cities. Uh, teenagers and up expect that, otherwise it's just kid stuff. We want to make something more real. Uh, and they did. In the original Gundam, it's pretty dark. I mean, in the early episode, uh, a daughter watches her mother get killed uh, and is crying over the dead body. I mean, it, it's pretty heavy material. Uh, the, the mother is mad at the hero's son for murdering, uh, being a war hero because he's also a murderer, <laughs> which is, again, one of those things that makes sense once you think about it, but it's rarely addressed uh, in war movies, much less in cartoon uh, form. So he made this show, and it was supposed to sell toys, but the toys didn't sell. Uh, and it became a crisis, and the company, the toy company that uh, gave them uh, a, a year, a uh, promise of a year support, pulled out, and after 10 months, the show was canceled early. And it wasn't until older fans pick up on the show and its depth and its seriousness uh, that the show is revived. And also, at the time, a small toy company called Bondi says, you know, teenagers, they don't want to buy action figures, but they do like to build these plastic models. And so they license the plastic model market uh, from this other toy company that doesn't make plastic models and found there was a huge teenage market for these plastic models around Gundam. Uh, and the rest is history. Gundam is revived. It's a 30-plus year franchise. It's the biggest moneymaker there is for Bondi. Bondi is the largest toy company in Japan. Clover, the original supporter, has gone out of business. Uh, it's an interesting example of how, uh, if you just look at the content of Gundam uh, and try to analyze its success or failure, you won't understand until you understand how it reaches to a community, how it connects to a, a different kind of toy business, 
and how it expands uh, through sort of fan labor and labor outside of the animation studios themselves. And so that's one of the big lessons of Gundam. Now, in that chapter, also, you're taking us into into your field work at a brainstorming session where there's a discussion of anime and toys in terms of um, the morning is devoted to kind of talking about nostalgia for the past and then the afternoon is devoted to talking about future directions. This is one of a a bunch of spaces that you bring us into and looking at really the connections and the -the on-the-ground labor and discussions that are going into the kind of production of value that we see emerging throughout the book. The next chapter also takes us into uh, the studios of uh, what's called Gonzo Studios, where you observed uh, processes of the making of Red Garden in 2006. And this is also the chapter in which you are actually describing your recruitment as a voice actor (laughs) at one point. And you're looking here at um, a really interesting... Uh, a really interesting set of design spaces as grounds for creative work. So I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about that, but I will ask you um, to talk a little bit about something that comes up here that I think is really interesting. Um, Conceptually, even if you don't work on or you're not interested or don't think you're interested in comics. So in addition to raising the idea of avant core as something new that also acts as a foundation upon which others can build, so listeners can find that in this chapter, and that's really interesting, you raise something that um, I really loved um, because, you know, background, I teach a course on history in the graphic novel, and we read Scott McCloud's book on comics, and all my students always get excited about Scott McCloud's treatment of the gutter. Yeah. Um, and so you're using here the idea of the gutter in comic books to talk about um, something much broader in terms of collaborative creativity. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of the gutter and how it helps us understand um, the collaborative creativity that you're talking about in this part of the book? Sure, sure. So uh, Scott, shout out to Scott McLeod. I, I really enjoy his work as well, understanding comics and making comics. And he has a new book about the web comics revolution as well. Uh, he talks about all sorts of interesting things with uh, comics uh, as a comic book artist himself. But one of the concepts is the idea of that space between the frames of a panel in a comic book or a comic strip. Uh, and one of the things he argues is that, sure, what we draw in, within the frame and the characters that are in there and the way we design the layout of those frames is very important. But he said what makes comics such a fascinating medium is that space between the frame. And, and the example I use in the book and the, the Scott, I take from Scott McCloud is a picture of some guy, crazed psychopath, raising an axe and a guy in front of him uh, looking fearful. And then the next is a, a distant shot of the city and all you can see is buildings in the distance at night, and then a scream coming out of one of the buildings. Ah! Uh, and Scott McCloud says, here's the interesting thing, is I didn't make the axe fall. <laughs> You're the one who has to decide. Uh, why did that axe fall? How hard did it happen? What happened after that axe fall? What happened during that scream? He said, you know, the comic book artist always has a silent accomplice in crime, and that accomplice is you, the reader. Uh, And that it's in that space between the frames that the reader's effort comes to the fore. Uh, And he, you know, he makes clear. And I, I say, well, it's it's not an equal partner in crime, but it's it certainly we have a role uh, in, in thinking about the connection between those spaces. 
Um, and because, as sort of as I mentioned earlier, you know, what I've been thinking about is that not just what happens on the screen, which really seems to me is kind of the bulk of media studies, not all of it, certainly, but there's a lot of media studies where there's very close readings, uh, tight analysis of what happens on the screen or in the media objects. And I'm interested in that space between. And here it is again. There's that space between uh, where it's not quite what was drawn, but it was what was not drawn. Uh, and having that openness for us to fill in our own energy, uh, it seems to me that that's very much symbolic of where media is going these days. Uh, that if there was a time when networks stood for ABC, NBC, CBS as the providers of content to a passive audience, that now a network is more like Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter, where the, the media company is providing a platform of participation, uh, a kind of openness, a kind of gutter uh, that we need to then fill in uh, to have that participation become meaningful. Uh, and so it was very inspirational to me, and, and I, I increasingly see that side of media as being the key to success. And the, the next, this actually really um, beautifully leads us into something that I'm not actually going to ask you about, um, just in, in the interest of time, but I want to mention, um, is Chapter 6, which takes this idea of participation and fan participation specifically, um, and looks specifically at practices of, um, practices actually that you began the conversation with, and that you, you know, say that you began in some ways the project with, which are practices of online file sh sharing, like BitTorrent, etc., and fan subbing, so the, um, the creation of subtitles and translation, translations of subtitles of anime by fans. And, so, and you get into in Chapter 6 not just a description of the, the ground of fan subbing, what is this, who's doing it, what are the potential ethical implications of this, and how do we complicate, or how, how might we use this specifically to complicate the way we think of issues of copyright and ownership and authorship and property and piracy. And so it, it really, I think, raises new possibilities for us to think about not just anime, not just manga, um, not just Japan, but also the emerging regimes of copyright and ownership and authorship and how that's very much changing as a result of this transmedia practice. So which brings us to the love revolution. Um, so, of course, I let's have... Let's get to the love revolution. <laughs> let's get to the love revolution. So, Chapter 7, um, I have to ask you about Chapter 7. You, you, I'm sure you could anticipate that I was going to ask you. This looks at how some obsessive fans, and, and I use that not as a judgmental term. So, so otaku um, is the term that you're using here. And so, when I use obsessive, I actually don't read you as using obsessive here in, in a judgmental kind of negative way, but rather in a, in a kind of way to describe a really intense engagement by fans with anime um, in various ways and exactly. how so how they're channeling desires so and all kinds of desires for anime characters um to the point of sometimes wanting to marry them um so can you just start us off by talking about this this case in 2008 of this guy um circulating a petition to marry this 2d character Exactly. I don't remember how this passed into my email box, but somebody must have sent it along, and I forget where I heard about it. But yes, there was a guy uh, who set up a petition calling for the uh, legal recognition 
uh, of people's right to uh, marry anime characters. And in a nice way of putting it, too, which was that uh, basically he says, I'm fed up with a 3D world. If I had my choice, I'd live in a 2D world. Uh, since that's not possible with today's technology, uh, the very least you can do uh, is legally acknowledge that I have a right uh, to marry an anime character if I want to. Uh, and if I could, here's the character I'd, I'd marry. <laughs> he, he mentions, uh, for those anime fans out there, of, uh, of uh, Haruhi, an anime show, the, the melancholy of uh, Haruhi Suzumiya, uh, one of the characters in there, Asahina Mikuru. And so, uh, uh, and so he did it. And then he, he said, I want a, a million signatures. And, well, people started signing up. He ended up, I guess, getting about 3,000 in the end, so not quite a million. Uh, but 3,000 still uh, supporters. And it was this sort of interesting, extreme example uh, of, again, the way we, we become attached to these characters. We put emotional energy into them, even though they're, they're not real characters. Uh, needless to say, this prompted lots of uh, catcalls and, and ridicule uh, from folks uh, saying how ridiculous, uh, what losers these people are, and, uh, you know, why... Isn't this going to be a problem given the already uh, difficult situation of low birth rates in Japan? So that kind of that kind of stuff came out, and I thought, well, that's okay. That's easy. That's an easy target. Uh, but clearly, there's something other going on here. Um, and as I started thinking about it, you know, it, it occurs to me uh, that first of all, uh, it's not so strange. I mean, I don't know. I remember uh, my friends in high school putting up posters of uh, scantily clad celebrities from Charlie's Angels on their wall, and they, they weren't really real people either, <laughs> it seems to me. So I wasn't sure how different it was from that, the difference being that, uh, you know, to fall for a celebrity like Justin and Bieber is one thing to fall for. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants is another thing. But for me, I'm not so sure that there's a big difference there, uh, that these are kind of constructed and, and semi-real people uh, in both cases. Um, and that more, it seemed to me, a debate about sort of masculinity and, and what masculinity can and should mean in today's world. And, and the otaku, right, these obsessive fans are always picked out in Japan as being the dysfunctional stay-at-home types. Uh, it's actually not a fair characterization at all, the, as time goes on, and I, I, I talk about this material with my Japanese colleagues and just new people in Japan, too, what you find is there's all sorts of very successful otaku who are kind of closet otaku, <laughs> and they don't talk about it because there is such discrimination uh, against some of these forms of fandom, and, and it, it strikes me as completely unfair. I mean, I, I don't understand why it's, it's okay to, to like, uh, football or... Uh, or, or caged ultimate fighting uh, in ways that it's not okay to like uh, giant robot anime, um, except that there are these prejudices that are out there. They're very difficult to shake. Uh, and even this kind of what I, it's basically a pretty silly petition, but the key point of it for me is uh, not that people want to marry a character. It seems to me if they, if they, want to marry a character, they can. <laughs> you know, the character's not going to object. Uh, uh, but what the, the petition was really about was recognition, public recognition, that this is okay and, and get off our back. Uh, and it seemed to me that actually that's a kind of fair thing to say, and it raises questions of discrimination in all sorts of areas and and how people have to 
really use all sorts of means at their disposal to fight it. So that was part of the story uh, of that. And, and you're right. And the love revolution is that some people are actively really defending it and saying this is the future. I'm not sure it's the future. Uh, but, but I think it, what seems like just what was interesting to me is, is although it seems like a silly, ridiculous thing, uh, that I think it's actually gesturing towards a, a kind of important issue about, um, you know, especially with all the anxiety for men and women about where jobs of the future are going to come from. And if people don't have jobs, what are the other ways in their lives that they can find meaning and value uh, and, and sort of a foundation uh, for their own future? And I think that's what a lot of this stuff is about. And I think you make the point really nicely in the book. The character is not only not going to object, but also isn't going to reciprocate. And so this is <laughs> this is actually something that seems really silly, but gets us to something potentially really profound. You know, so the sort of the idea of thinking of a love relationship, um, which is a kind of um, which comes from I think you put it in the book an emotional response with no hope of reciprocation, actually helps us think um, a little bit more flexibly about know how we measure um, value and masculinity in terms of productivity and how that might be changing um, how this changes ideas of consumption ideas of love as, as mentioned in the title of the chapter so it's actually um, potentially quite profound um, depending on you know where we want to go with this example thank you I think so too <laughs> So, Ian, um, and, and the last question I'm going to ask you before I ask you a couple of uh, wrap-up questions, you also have this conclusion that we don't have time to talk, um, to do it justice, really, to talk in detail about um, the moves that you're making here in this concluding chapter of the book. So I wanted to just gesture two important moves that you're making here for listeners and also give you a chance. Um, you, you mentioned here that this ethnographic approach to anime that you're giving us um, in the, the seven body chapters of the book actually helps us think about two phenomena in particular among the other things that are happening in the conclusion. So something that you're calling globalization from below and also some possibly wider possibilities for thinking about the future of um, emergent culture and emergent cultural practices. So is there anything that you'd like to say um, about either one of those issues or about um, anything else that you think of um, that, that you'd really like to mention that you think of as important in this concluding chapter? Sure. Uh, I mean, it, it is this globalization from below it is it's certainly a, an idea that uh, animates a lot of my work and that I, I've been thinking about a lot. And part of it is in the context of what I do think is a crisis in global capitalism right now, which is to say that advanced economies like the U.S., like like Japan, are facing a situation where the middle class was often supported by manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing jobs have now moved to China and other low-wage nations and seem unlikely to come back, at least not in the big numbers that we used to have. And it raises the question, well, what? What are the new kind of industries? What are the new kinds of jobs that are out there? Um, and I, you know, Japanese cartoons don't necessarily answer that big question. But it's worth keeping in mind that 100 years ago, there was no such thing as animation, uh, much less an animation industry. Uh, and now it's a multi-billion dollar global industry. Uh, and that when animation began, it was very much seen as something unlikely uh, to succeed. It's too much work. It doesn't even make that much money on its own. Uh, but it be can become part of a bigger complex. So part of my interest in animation is that it should be in inspirational. Uh, anyway, anime is inspirational because it shows 
uh, that these cultural movements and artistic practices from the margins uh, that seem unlikely at the time can nevertheless move into a kind of mainstream and become multi-billion dollar businesses globally. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, one of the messages I hope I can try to get out through this book and, and through other related examples is that uh, these activities from the margins can move into the center and become a part of new kinds of industries, new kinds of media businesses. And that what distinguishes, it seems to me, what distinguishes uh, the successes is that they draw this kind of social energy, a social energy that may or may not make money at first, right? Again, we go back to this Gundam example. If we were just thinking about financial returns, Gundam was a failure at first, but the energy around it built up to make it a success. Uh, and so it seems to me that as we're trying to design a new future uh, for our economy, for our society, uh, that rather than asking the first question, you know, how are we going to make money at it? Uh, maybe we want to ask a different question, which is how might people get excited about this and involved? And through that social energy, then that becomes the platform on which we can build all kinds of industries, whether it's toys or fan conventions or other kinds of anime or comic books or fan-made comic books. That It's the energy that connects it. Uh, and so in that way, I just feel globalization from below offers us an alternative to saying it's only the elites. It's only the people who, with money. It's only the national governments that have power to change anything. I want to say no, that the history of media uh, and popular culture actually disproves uh, that. Uh, and that there are alternative paths of globalization that offer us great opportunities for the future. Well, I might just touch on, you mentioned it briefly, but this idea of the democratic capitalism of manga or Japanese comic books. Uh, because to me, one of the things that this story of anime gave me insight into was all the aspects of social media today. Uh, and the ways that if you have something that's easy to participate in uh, and that you get feedback from... Uh, that it can lead to very rich and vibrant media worlds. And comic books are like that. I mean, anybody with a pen and paper, literally, can make a comic. Uh, and then, so that's one aspect of democracy in ways that making a Hollywood movie, not so accessible. Uh, it, what else about that is that it's very cheap to access manga, right? Like it's cheap to access stuff on the internet. And because people can access more and more of it, it means that the, the true fans are the ones who get more of a say in what's popular as opposed to this marketing onslaught that we get with the latest Tom Cruise movies, for example. Uh, and so it's a different way of thinking about the sources of success in media. Um, and manga is interesting because the publishers very much respond to the readers as well, soliciting three or 4,000 reader response post postcards every week to identify the success, the best stories in each series of comic books and the worst stories, and then rewarding those uh, who are successful uh, and cycling in new authors for the, for the failed stories. Uh, and so I think if we imagine, sort of take, take our cues from popular culture, there should be ways to define more democratic approaches to politics, more democratic approaches to markets and corporations, uh, and it seems to me there's a lot to learn from popular culture generally. Uh, and we're seeing that right now with this explosion of social media. And so for me, 
this story of anime is really the prehistory of social media and proof that what the dynamics that lead to social media success have probably been around before the internet uh, and that we can learn from these examples from the past in terms of carrying forward to the future and imagining new futures for all of us. So the next thing, so if I, I think about the trajectory of my career, I looked at hip-hop and said, why did hip-hop take root in Japan? And I said, you know, it was these nightclubs where people got together to perform, to network, to socialize and have fun, that you needed these spaces for coming together. That's why I felt I learned from, from the hip-hop case. And then I looked at anime. I said, you know what's interesting about anime is this, you can't look at it as a single industry. You need to connect creators, producers, and fans, and you also need to connect comic books, anime, toys, and fan production as well. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm worried about the future of capitalism. I'm, I'm not hearing a uh, honest adult conversation about where young people these days can expect the industries to emerge from. Uh, and so what I, but what I think is, and part of the reason is that whenever you say, oh, we should do this, people say, well, how are you going to make money at that? Um, and so what I see happening is these sort of creative communities emerging of various kinds. I mean, think of Wikipedia, or for people who know this virtual idol from Japan, Hatsune Miku, uh, that there are these cases where uh, they're not organized as corporations. They don't make money uh, in a traditional way, and nevertheless, they become productive and meaningful and have value. So that's my new project, is to think about varieties of these uh, online communities or creative communities that offer alternative approaches to both civic participation and economic production. Uh, and so that's, I'm actually starting, I'm calling it the Online Communities Initiative uh, at MIT, and it'll be housed in Comparative Media Studies, uh, one of my departments, and also uh, affiliated with the Center for Civic Media uh, to try to see how these kinds of communities offer alternatives, uh, new ways of imagining what the future of capitalism might be. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.